Hello, it's David Shirley from Irish Funds. Today's podcast is a highlight from the Irish Funds Annual Conference 2022 that we held in Dublin on the 31st of May. It's a panel discussion on regulation and features Dervil Rowland of the Central Bank of Ireland, Verena Ross of ESMA and Martin Maloney of IOSCO. The panel is moderated by Declan Casey of Irish Funds. I hope you enjoy this episode and check back soon for more great content. It's my great pleasure to be here today. And for those of you that don't know me, my name is Declan Casey, and I'm the Legal and Technical Director at Irish Funds. If ever there was a panel that didn't need to be introduced today, I, I think this is it. And testimony to my panelists, earlier on I said to them, well, look, I can't possibly do your careers justice in the, t- in the 30, 35 minutes we have here. So I, I su- suggested to them I was going to let them introduce themselves. Their response was, Declan, we don't want to tell the audience who we are. We want to share our insights with them. So I think that's testimony to the panel and, and, and a great start. In the 30 or so minutes we have today, our intention is to touch upon three important areas that we feel you'd be interested in hearing the views of our panelists. And indeed, in just listening to the governor uh, here, I think we've, it, it was easy enough, I think, to identify the three key themes, financial stability, AIFMD, and ESG. Also, just to say, we do have, or we are using the Slido app, uh, and if we have an opportunity, we will be happy to take some questions from the audience. So if you can uh, post them on Slido, we'll monitor the screens here and try and cover any questions you might have if if we can. So to kick off, financial stability. Seems to me that financial stability is playing a more significant role in the policy formation and the regulation of the sector, particularly asset management of funds products. Previously, investor protection appeared to be the dominant concern and, and while it seems to me that policymakers and regulators have an increasing eye on financial stability concerns. Martin, as you have a global perspective, can I ask you to comment on this apparent trend towards a greater emphasis on financial stability and the macroprudential concerns and how regulators are thinking about the future of the regulatory and framework for investment funds and asset managers from a global perspective, then maybe Verena from a European perspective and, and Dermal then from a national perspective. I was very interested in the governor's remarks that he just made on this very topic. And the thing that strikes me is it's right to go back to 2008 and the financial crisis when you talk about this. Because uh, we went through a huge process of change, particularly the introduction of margining and and clearing uh, uh, for derivative products to try to manage counterparty risk. And we brought in a framework for uh, liquidity management in investment funds. And if you're in the industry, you might well be asking, where are we now? Surely we have done all this, or have we not done all this? Are we saying the same things we said 10 years ago? What is the progress? What's the definition of progress? And it's been extremely interesting. Uh, Every cloud, I guess, has a silver lining. When you go through a period of market uh, instability, whether it's a flash crash or something extremely serious like COVID-19 or the recent uh, invasion of Ukraine and the impact of that on markets, Every single time an event like that happens, we get to ask ourselves, how did the system respond? How well did it do? How did the new system respond? How robust is it? You get to kick the tires. And you might think, 
Well, if you keep on doing that every time there's a market shudder, you'll just keep on tightening the regulations again and again and again and again. But I think the thing that struck many of us in the regulatory system was the obligation that central banks felt in 2020 to intervene. And that was a really very significant event and is very consequential and important both for securities regulators and central bankers. This is not about trying to get to the point where financial markets don't shudder, don't have sudden movements, because that's the way financial markets work. They do that. They respond very quickly to information that suddenly becomes available. That's not the problem. The problem is where you get to the point far too quickly where you have to have central bank intervention or when you get knock-on effects that no one could have anticipated and aren't implied in the character of the shock that hits the system. Those are the two things we worry about. And that makes us ask questions now, particularly in relation to March, April 2020, but also in relation to the Ukraine events and the others I spoke about, is, is the system robust enough? Have we done enough? And a lot of the changes that we discuss at this point, and there was mention of money market fund changes earlier, there are about refining, improving, just getting the system a little bit more stable so that we can get it sufficiently stable. Now, you can't put a number on sufficiently stable, but we, I think we're getting closer and closer to it. We have made huge progress. There is a bit more to do. It would be criminal if we didn't learn from events like March, April 2020. I think one of the huge problems for us is we continue to suffer from inadequate data. And we always uh, have to be conscious of don't try to fix the problem you can see or fix the symptom you can see, but try and find the underlying problem. And that's a huge struggle, frankly, in the regulatory debates to try to achieve that. But I think where we are now is about refining, improving. It's not about fundamental change. Everything that has happened has confirmed that all the money and time that was spent by regulators and legislators and industry after the financial crisis in implementing the reforms then were really well spent. Martin, I'm, I'm smiling there. I remember a comment from one of your predecessors, David Wright, at one of our conferences about 10 years ago. He made an observation that regulators don't have sufficient data to forecast the next crisis. In 10 years' time, I suspect we might be having the same conversation. Yeah. It's a very serious issue still. Verena, yeah. mm -hmm. thoughts? Um, I can only very much underline what Martin has said and also what the governor said earlier. I think um, we have actually done a lot and achieved a lot after the uh, global financial crisis, and we should not underestimate that. If I look particularly at the European um, framework, we clearly have more extensive reporting requirements, which I know some of you might not be too happy with, but I think it is allowing us to have a better view, particularly um, on alternative investment funds and leverage and so on. At the same time, there are still data gaps, so I fully agree with Martin that we should not stop here, and I think particularly the extension of some of the data reporting from AIFMD into USITS is an extremely important part of the overall picture uh, from a European perspective. At the same time, we also have increased stress testing requirements. Other parts of the considerations of leverage and liquidity are already in the system. But I think, as Martin rightly said, we need to continue to keep under review whether the system is sufficiently stable. Of course, every shock will be different, and you can't have a 100% guarantee that, you know, really fundamental shocks and volatility will not percolate through parts of the system and create a, a, volatility, a 
uh, weaknesses. At the same time, I think what I particularly think is important is that we continue to refine the system, as Martin said. I think we uh, have an opportunity there in a couple of areas. One is on liquidity management tools. And we, I think we've seen how important some of these can be, particularly in the most recent uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine episode and the ability to suspend redemptions, to look at how to deal with some of the assets which you can no longer value, how can you segregate them into side pockets potentially and all of that. Those are important measures that can be taken that can really increase the stability of the system overall. And I think we also have opportunities here to work not just at the European level, but also globally with our partners in IOSCO, in the FSB, to make sure that we find the right way forward. Another opportunity is the review of the money market funds regulation, which is clearly now under consideration by the Commission. And uh, that is an area where ESMA obviously has also made some uh, proposals and advice of how to deal with that. So um, I think there are some further points uh, and steps to take, but overall we should not underestimate how far we've already gone. Dervalani, any thoughts on, in, in particular, I know Martin talked about central bank intervention, and I wonder as we have two securities regulators, the central bank is both a potential, uh, a central bank and a securities regulator. Do you think the uh, securities regulators uh, have a real voice in this debate or has it been driven by central banks? So that's a really interesting question. And what I see is actually, there's a real unification of voices at the global uh, level with IOSCO working with the FSB and we're privileged to be um, part of uh, both of those debates. And um, I think because we're conscious, we have a unique insight that we can draw together what we'd like to say is a balanced perspective, being a central bank, uh, a markets authority, we certainly fully buy in uh, to all the notions that markets will uh, behave in ways that uh, will uh, move in both directions. But what we expect to see is it to perform as expected. And what we think we see is um, a case for resilience measures uh, along a continuum, not to eradicate the predictable and expected movements that market will have, but to address frailties that dislocate the market or prove risk uh, in a contagion way. So some of the uh, key issues that have been raised by others, and I know will pose uh, concerns sometimes for businesses, is the need for data. But we see it at a global level where there's a lot of data constructs that don't speak to each other, which is harmful to a global assessment of interconnectedness. It's uh, not cost-effective, and it isn't effective for um, detailed, specific regulation that would address the issues in a purposive and targeted way. And I want to say, in uh, COVID-19, uh, we all had to work very hard to deal with the unexpected situation. Industry were unbelievably responsive in providing the very data that we needed uh, at a fast pace with many demands, they were coming on us as they were on industry. And we worked uh, at a global uh, level and indeed with uh, Verena and Esma and the colleagues um, on daily and weekly calls to look at the data to inform us. And we definitely did see issues arising and uh, we saw a dash for cash. We did see first mover uh, dynamics. We did see that having uh, concerns that were acute around liquidity. And we've already referenced 
there's a great opportunity for microprudential measures to be utilized. And that's, I guess, our focus. We uh, certainly support a fully articulated toolkit of liquidity management tools. And I think actually we're doing, uh, I don't want to sound complacent as a regulator, um, we're doing pretty okay in this jurisdiction. Um, and we think there's a good opportunity here for a well-articulated liquidity management tool framework that's well understood. Regulators need to help in that regard. But actually, the critical issue here is normalizing use of these in an escalated way. We saw in some jurisdictions, actually, the regulator intervened so that the collective uh, inaction problem uh, was addressed by gathering up the issues so that everybody acted together. So we need to normalize the use of that. I know there's more controversial debates around money market fund reform and uh, around uh, the basis of NAVs and amortization costs. And that will be played out, uh, I think, in the Commission. We should all have a voice in that. I think there's a case for strengthening resilience, but in balance. Uh, and I think um, we can expect to see further developments at a global and European uh, level on that. Thank you. Um, I see we don't have any questions on the slider yet, so just to remind you. But nevertheless, we're moving on. That's, we've warmed up the audience now. Uh, AIFMD and Gerard, you gave us a bit of a segue into it, I think, with reference to liquidity management tools. But uh, we've seen a sustained period of globalization, but COVID has caused, where COVID has caused governments to consider the implications of potential over-reliance of uh, supply of services uh, from other, other jurisdictions, other countries and elsewhere. And the concept of sovereign autonomy has come to the fore. And this is the backdrop uh, to the current AIFMD uh, review and, and debate. While we believe we have broad agreement on the benefits of delegation uh, for investors. There's a big debate on the data that regulators should have access to when it comes to delegation. Uh, Verena, ESMA had some interest, interesting thoughts in their 2020 letter uh, to the Commission uh, in advance of the AIFMD review, uh, in particular on delegation. And perhaps you can give us some insights into what role you believe ESMA should be playing uh, with respect to delegation and the collection of data. Mm. Thank you. No, I know uh, AIFMD and delegation is the hot topic and every conference I speak at with fund management um, involvement, we get ultimately to this topic. And I think uh, it's, I just want to reiterate what you already said. I think we all agree that delegation is part of the model of how fund management works. The issue that we have been faced with in ESMA has been very much the very different views in which national supervisory authorities actually look at delegation and how far they require certain uh, functions to be located in the entity that they authorize and supervise and how far delegation is allowed to what extent, what the reporting requirements around that are and what the governance and substance requirements are of the entities that uh, the national supervisor has responsibility for. So, we um, are, like you, looking at the Commission proposal now, which is going through the co-legislative process. We will see where that ends up. I think what is important from our perspective is if you want ESMA to play a role in making sure that there is a more common approach and you want to make sure that we are able to do that properly, you need to allow us to get some information 
And I think that needs to be both quantitative and qualitative. So I think it's not just about more and more statistics. It's also about understanding how national supervisors look at this issue and making sure that we then have the possibility to actually review that and take a view on whether this overall works and meets the delegation requirements that are in the legislation ultimately. So um, on that, the proposal is to have a peer review. I think to our mind, it's not very useful to have a peer review on this particular topic every year because the likelihood that things will change significantly from one year to the next is probably not very high. And we also need to make sure that we look at how we use our resources most effectively. Peer reviews are a very expensive and resource intensive tool. And therefore, we believe we should probably look at this uh, once there is proper data to look at and the experience of the national competent authorities in a peer review, at least one significant peer review before you look into further reviewing the regime down the line. So um, I think the other thing that we believe that is important is that we understand, have a common understanding of what we actually mean by portfolio management function. There's every time the debate what actually is included in this, how do you actually look at portfolio management functions and so on. But the ultimate aim is purely about ensuring that the entity that is authorized and supervised has proper control of its decisions and of its governance while fully using the benefits that delegation can bring uh, to either entities in the same group or in other groups. And in my mind, that's the challenge. It's, it's easy to collect the data uh, on numbers and the extent of delegation, but it's hard to paint the picture of that governance and oversight, and that will be the real challenge. And that's why you need the quantitative and the qualitative information, to my mind. Yeah. Derville, we here have uh, lots of experience in governance of delegation and, and, and oversight, uh, in particular with respect to CP86. Maybe you could say a few words about that with respect to the proposals and that are on the table? So for me, I think that's precisely the place for us to start in uh, looking at uh, the opportunities in AIFMD. I think um, uh, for Verena's benefit, CP86 is local parlance uh, for uh, a piece of work that was done, in fact, incepted, I think, by Martin um, a number of years ago, if we're uh, looking uh, at uh, the history, and it was to take a look to see how the industry was set up in terms of substance, governance, delegation, uh, oversight, to deliver on uh, the obligations. And I think a lot of good work was done uh, in terms of the industry, and I think it was prescient uh, of the regulator to have the foresight uh, to look at this. And I certainly know that, again, we can always do better and we'll uh, keep a keen eye on these issues, but I think it delivered well uh, as a piece of uh, rigorous analysis to make sure that the commitments that uh, we all need to meet in terms of governance, oversight, uh, and effectiveness are present. And we saw uh, a key assessment of that was properly implemented uh, CP86 is effective, and those firms who embrace that, and many did, um, uh, are delivering effectively. And I think that is a good starting point for looking at the requirements of the AIFMD. And if I just take a step back, um, I think it might be a mistake to narrow the focus in the review in the AIFMD uh, too narrowly at exceptional issues. Because I think you have to start with substance 
governance, oversight, effectiveness. And only within that context can you look then at certain elements of delegation because they have to work within a strong framework. And for me, I think there, there's a legitimate uh, basis to think that maybe too much focus on third country delegations isn't uh, exactly uh, how we should frame this. It should really be framed in effectiveness. So um, there's a bit of work, I think, to be done on clarity of definitions about uh, delegating more than retained, because for me that is one element, but too much focus on a narrow issue um, just uh, might not be as helpful as making sure we take a holistic approach. Thanks, Tervald. Uh, Martin, clearly the industry here should thank you for CP86. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but maybe picking up on, on one of Daryl's observations with respect to third country uh, uh, delegation. Uh, and that's, that's been one of our concerns in looking at it between uh, intra-EU and uh, outside the EU. Uh, any thoughts from a global perspective? I, I just say this, I don't want so much on, the, on, on, on this. Um, you know, delegation is one example of uh, principal-agent relationships, which are rightly a key feature of the whole financial services sector. They deliver a huge portion of the total benefit from the way the financial services sector is organised. You get specialists doing a job for somebody else and doing it better or cheaper cost, they could do it themselves. But they're also the source of the main reason for uh, uh, regulation of the intensity that we've got. Because they're such a powerful tool that can deliver so much good they can also be abused. And in the end, and I just make this observation, Europe as a, as a marketplace, there needs to be confidence of all countries uh, in, in the overall structure. And the measure in the end of success or failure in relation to this discussion of delegation in Europe will be that you have the confidence of all the members of the EU and, and indeed of their populations that this is a well-regulated and well-functioning sector. And I, that's, I know it's a very broad remark, but it's the bottom line here in the end. If you're selling to East European investors, then they, their governments and their regulators have to be confident that what comes out of Ireland or anywhere else is well regulated and well structured. And if you achieve that, this debate will end up in a good place and you'll be able to get the benefits on an ongoing basis of delegation. If it's abused, you won't. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think we were going to touch upon liquidity management tools as part of the proposal in AI fundy, but I think you've covered that that off, Dervil. Uh, maybe I, one or two questions on Slido here we might just uh, touch on. Uh, first one at, at the top there, the level of consolidation as a funds industry and is the cost of entry providing a barrier to new entry, new entrants. I don't know if anybody... I think I'll take that. Um... So we certainly saw a, a, a certain amount of consolidation in the funds industry uh, during the exercise that the industry conducted in CP86. Um, I, I don't think uh, we had a view on whether uh, that is concerning or otherwise. What we saw was a strengthening of um, a lot of the firms and others made business decisions uh, for themselves. Uh, what I can say is that, uh, as an overarching comment, the uh, numbers of funds and entrants into the industry continues to grow. Uh, the assets under management, uh, the numbers of funds. So I see a thriving, growing, uh, healthy sector that is vibrant and participating 
uh, well uh, and growing well in Europe and globally. So I, I just don't see uh, anything uh, indicating a concern because we see an industry and the assets under management growing significantly year on year. And that's a trend that continues. And as we look into our pipelines, uh, I think we see that continuing uh, in that direction. And in terms of, uh, I don't know if you wanted to ask me the data question, I can have a, a stab to say that uh, certainly we all have actually reporting requirements. Mm. You'd be surprised to know I have reporting requirements, <laughs> not personally, but the central bank to uh, Verena and Martin is always making data requests uh, of us and some of which I go along with and some of which I ask for more time and some of which I say I only have some of the data and some of it may not be of the right quality. So that may feel like some of the experiences you have. So uh, everybody has a boss and it depends on what the legal framework is. Some of those data requirements are absolutely on the firm that are providing them and the data quality issue is on the firm and there are data quality issues uh, and I have them too and I'm sure uh, it's um, issue specific. But I recognize it's a big issue for firms, for us, because the world has moved into data and that's why I started with the observation it is wholly inefficient for global frameworks not to address interoperability and effectiveness of data uh, acquisition so that we can be targeted and more effective. That's can I maybe just underline do. that? I think um, from my perspective, uh, Derval is absolutely right. The importance of data quality and data completeness in the current environment where you know, we as supervisors and regulators are also increasingly relying on that data to be able to make the risk-based decisions on where to focus, where are the risks, what do we need to look at. It's absolutely essential. And for that, this is very important. And we have a role to play as that, as regulators and supervisors, both in our own reporting requirements, but also in making sure that we provide as much guidance and support so that data reporting can be done to the right quality and that we actually end up with data which we can use rather than a huge data lake, which is not usable. Thank you. Well, I don't intend making a data request of, of any of you, but, but what, I, what I would say is certainly, and it comes up time and again, is when industry is asked to provide data, it would be really great if, if it could be aggregated and fed back, that industry could, could kind of use what they've provided. Uh, so again, we'll, it's a conversation for another. I'm actually going to agree yep. with you, and maybe Verena will too. Actually, I was. Uh, some of you will be familiar with the central bank's uh, strategy and some of the areas of priority focus for us. And recognizing the enormous benefit of sharing the data that we do have with industry, with other participants for the public good, it is something of um, absolute, it's, it's a correct point to make and it's something that we need to take cognizance of and do more of. So I, I can completely agree with you. Thanks, Jeremy. I appreciate it. I mean, it's great when the panel agree. Uh, <laughs> maybe better when they don't. <laughs> that's not the goal today. But uh, again, to talk about some of the work, well, just briefly, some of the work the bank did on outsourcing and how that informed industry. Uh, at the few years ago, the cross-sectoral body of work you did was hugely instructive and informative for industry. So, so, so to acknowledge that. Uh, moving on, uh, it wouldn't be a conference at this point in time without touching on ESG. Uh, so look, again, ESG is a very significant and important topic for the industry. Given the, significant, the significance of Ireland's offering, it's no surprise that it's a key focus for the central bank. 
not simply from a regulatory perspective, but also from a societal uh, perspective. So, Derval, perhaps you can share with us some of the uh, thoughts of the central bank on this important. Okay, so I'm, I'm sure all the panelists will want to come in on this really important topic. And earlier in the year, we issued a Dear CEO letter, uh, which was framed across all of the um, dimensions of the mandate of the central bank, which is, uh, it covers obviously central banking, uh, prudential uh, conduct considerations. And again, you won't be surprised to hear me think about this in terms of risk management frameworks, business models, scenario analysis, stress testing. But there's a particular and acute area that the funds industry have a real challenge and an opportunity uh, to help uh, us all. Uh, it's an opportunity for business, it's an opportunity for investors, and it, it's along the lines of marshalling investment uh, to make sure that we uh, address climate and offer your customers the products that they want. But there is a risk. There is a complex regulatory uh, policy framework being built in Europe. It is not built yet. And that is the challenge with regulatory frameworks. They're not built in one day or in one moment. And whilst they are being built, problems can arise and uh, real significant risks uh, can crystallize. So it's the risk of greenwashing, Article 8 and Article 9. Um, light green and dark green products can be very attractive, but they can be missold. And I know that data will play its part. The regulations aren't built yet, but it has to be a key focus for all of us. Uh, and I know that uh, we're going to do uh, a focused piece of work uh, in terms of our gate to look at the alignment of uh, the products with the uh, various elements of the regulation to inform our work. And I'm sure Verena will want to say something about maybe Esma's focus mm -hmm. uh, on this and uh, the European focus. Mm -hmm. Please. Yes, and I won't preempt all that I might say later on in the <laughs> keynote speech, but um, maybe just to focus, I think, uh, from our perspective, obviously, as Derville rightly said, the regulatory framework is still in the process of being built. And that means there is currently quite a complex and not necessarily perfectly timed um, progress of the different pieces of the regulatory framework. And that puts a lot of uh, strain on you as the industry to try to meet the requirements without having complete clarity of some of the detail. It also puts a huge burden on us as uh, the regulators at European level trying to provide some more clarity, give you some support and answers. And we're working actively on that. So on the one hand, we've done the, with our fellow ESAs, the work on the technical standards under the SFRD, but we are also now working on further clarification, guidance, some uh, uh, help to you on Q&As and how to actually deal with some of these requirements. We are also working with the national competent authorities to think about how should supervision actually happen on the ground as regards to the um, SFRD. So there's an awful lot of work going on and the focus is very much on trying to ensure that we increase the um, disclosure and transparency that is there for investors and at the same time making sure that we, that we work to prevent greenwashing. As Derville said, that is a real risk at the moment given the huge demand for these products and also your wish as industry to provide those products but we need to be careful that we don't undermine the trust and the engagement of investors in this transition. 
No, I mean, it certainly seems to me that the obligations are coming faster than the clarity and the data that's available. But it's, it's a problem for regulators as well. Uh, and that's where the dialogue with industry and regulators is so important. Uh, we, we don't have too much time left, but maybe one final question uh, to ask each of you. Uh, maybe what do you think firms should be thinking about over the next three years? What do you see as the most impactful initiative? Uh, maybe Martin from a global perspective, Verena from a European perspective, and Durval from a, a national perspective. Well, actually, your question allows me to go back to the last question in, in a way, because certainly uh, my period in office in IOSCO is very closely linked to our ambitions in relation to sustainable finance. And I believe quite firmly that the industry in five to seven years' time is going to be really quite different. And it's going to be quite different because all these sustainable finance initiatives they're not, as I was once asked, isn't this just another fad? They're not a fad. They're actually going to change the structure of this industry. They're going to change the kind of data and information that you use and that you analyze in, in, in applying investor mandates. And we all have to get to that place. Uh, and it's not just a matter for the regulators. It's one for the industry as well. Uh, we are, I would say, in ASCO, strongly concerned by this issue of greenwashing. We greatly welcome the initiatives by people like ESMA who have uh, uh, got a sustainable finance roadmap where they're going to tackle uh, 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 the issue of greenwashing in, in Europe. And we need to see that all over the world, similar initiatives by regulators. But we also need to see industry representative bodies, I think, ensuring that you're having debates internally to create the degree of opprobrium around uh, greenwashing that needs to be there. And if that doesn't happen, the trust of legislators and the public in this industry will be eroded excessively and to, agree that, to a degree that will do this industry harm. So we have a three to five year period to wait until we have really good issuer information in place in public. And in that interim period, the people in this room and uh, in this industry generally can do the wrong thing. And a lot have been doing the wrong thing. I have to be honest about it. Trust and transparency about the limitations of what you can do with the current inadequate uh, data is really critical. You must tell people the truth about what you are capable of achieving at the present time with the inadequate information you have when they try and give you ESG mandates. Now, if you tell them the truth, you maintain and sustain your long-term relationship with them as your clients. If you don't tell them the truth and just try to say, yes, this is a perfect ESG product, then you undermine those relationships for the future and others will come in the end and eat your lunch who have, who have taken a better place and a better positioning in relation to this issue. That's Martin. Farina, follow that. Um, I won't go back to sustainability <laughs> because we'll talk about it a bit further. But I think I wanted to also pick up because it was raised here, the digital assets and financial innovation. So I think I would just emphasize that as another topic, which I think is in, has been and will continue to be very much in the forefront of the industry, the fund industry, but also of us as regulators and supervisors. Ultimately, there is a huge transformation, not just on sustainability, but also on uh, digitalization. And dealing with that appropriately as regulators and supervisors is another key challenge and one where we also need to engage with you to properly understand how this is impacting on your business and what the risks are that are arising from that. And crypto assets, by the way, is one of the topics there very clearly. Durville. I'm going to try and wrap that up um, <laughs> in a firms that take a longer term view of their commitments to their investors 
and how their product, services and approach deliver for them will be well set to take advantage of the changing landscape. So being distracted by the near-term competitor uh, who's competing on the wrong basis, no good will come of that. But those quality firms with quality governance and a quality long-term strategy that's entirely focused on delivering good products and services uh, with a real value proposition for the customers that they serve will, um, I think, sustain. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I think it's a good note to end on that. There's, there's a huge opportunity for the industry to do the right thing, to get it right, to build. And, uh, you know, on the back of CMU, there, there's, a, there's a huge desire and need for, for alternative funding mechanisms to help people save for their retirement, etc. The industry has a role to play in that, but it will fall if they fail on ESG in, in the short term. But look, I've certainly in, enjoyed the, the panel. I, I hope you have too. We're, we're at time, so I'll just ask you to uh, show your appreciation to my panelists. Thank you. Thank you.